mentioned, this is the beginning of a new sermon series, and the sermon series is called Failures and Faithfulness. And throughout this sermon series, which goes throughout Lent, we will be looking at uh, biblical characters, uh, pretty important biblical characters in most cases, people whom God loved, people whom God chose, people to whom God gave a specific task or commission, but then who fell flat in their face, who failed, who succumbed to temptation, who dropped the ball. And we'll be looking at their failure because, of course, we can learn from their failure. The things that tempted those people, uh, the ways in which they failed, are the same temptations that beset us and the same ways in which we are prone to fail. More importantly, we will look at the faithfulness of God through their failure and how God was faithful and sustained the community, sustained his people, and, and in spite of their sin and in spite of their failure. And that will inevitably, of course, take us to the foot of the cross, which is where we want to be in Lent, which is where we want to be all the time. Because the gift of the cross, the grace of the cross, the ethos of the cross is absolutely the center of who we are as a people. So today we start with failure, and we start with the very first failure, the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's read these, I think, pretty familiar words together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree and that was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed leaves, to, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you gave and put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And notice that uh, Adam effectively blames both Eve and God in that sentence for his sin. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. 
Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, the radio program, This American Life, did a special on superheroes. And the show always has a, a sort of a theme and different segments that orbit around that theme. This theme was superheroes. And as part of that show, one of the segments was that the producers went up to random people and asked them, which of two superpowers would you rather have? Which of two superpowers would you rather have? Would you rather have the ability to fly? Or would you rather have the ability to turn invisible at will? Would you rather have the ability to fly? Or would you rather have the ability to turn invisible at will? Now, it seems like a sort of a trivial, fluffy question at first. But in the context of the show, it turned out to be pretty revelatory. And here's why. So when the, when the choice was offered to people like you, their first inclination was to say, oh, man, flight. Of course, flight be so great to fly, to be able to just levitate, fly over the church, fly over the city, have the whole world spread out underneath you. That would be awesome. So fun, so joyful. So people's first inclination when they heard the question was to lean towards flight. But as they reflected on it more and more, as they started to talk through what invisibility could do for them, they started to lean towards invisibility. Why? because of the power and control that invisibility brings. Flight might be fun, but invisibility gives you power. Power over people. Power to go wherever you want, whenever you want. Power to escape situations. Power to hear what people are saying about you, about anything. Power to manipulate. And so, as people talked through the choice, they started to lean away from the joy of flight to the power of invisibility. That segment, which sounded fluffy at the beginning, ended up showing some of the darker leanings of the human heart. Some of those dark leanings show up in the story we just read, the story of Adam and Eve. Some of those same dark leanings are at work in the choice that Adam and Eve made. Adam and Eve did not, of course, choose invisibility. They chose to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why did they do that? What was it specifically that made Eve and Adam take that fruit and eat it. It wasn't just because the fruit looked yummy. What precisely was the temptation that made them want to eat that fruit? To answer that question carefully, and I think it's important that we do, you have to understand something about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were never meant to remain exactly as they were in the garden. They were always meant to grow and develop 
as human beings. That was always God's intent, okay? So Adam and Eve were not meant to walk around in the garden naked and smiling and just looking at how beautiful things were. That was not meant to be their whole life. They were meant to grow and be formed as human beings and build culture. That's how we've always interpreted Genesis 1:28, right? The cultural mandate, we sometimes call it. Fill the world and subdue it. So don't just walk around in the world and, and notice how lovely it is. Make stuff, create stuff. Just as I've created you, you become creators too. Make culture, make music, build homes, build communities, make art, plant crops. This was always God's intent for Adam and Eve. It wasn't, they weren't going to be static. They were always going to grow. They were always going to be formed. They were always going to develop. That's essential to who we are as human beings, this growth. If you want another bit of scriptural evidence that shows that this was always God's intent, think of the difference between the beginning of Scripture and the end. So what's the perfect place at the beginning of Scripture where human beings dwell? It's a garden. What's the perfect place at the end of Scripture where human beings dwell? It's a city. A place of culture. The streets and walls and community. It's always God's intent to have us grow. And that development, you can see it clearly in the way God constructs things, that development was always meant to be completed and done within the context of loving relationships, right? We were always meant to grow in a communal network of loving relationships and mutual dependence. First of all, with God. God would walk with us in the cool of the day and he would teach us his ways. He's the one who would help us develop and learn. But we'd also be in relationship, Adam and Eve would be in relationship with each other, right? They were helpmeets. They would lovingly support each other as they grew. And we would love creation too, right? We were stewards of it. We'd learn its properties. We'd properly relate to it. And we'd love the creation we lived in. So this, this network of supportive relationships. You can think of it this way. Adam and Eve in the garden were starting a kind of loving apprenticeship. God was the master. And they were the apprentices who were going to learn God's ways. And just like a regular apprentice, when you start in an apprenticeship, and an apprenticeship takes a long time, right? It takes years to move from an apprentice to, say, a master electrician. Just like in any apprenticeship, the apprentice would spend all the time at the feet of the master walking with him and learning with him, right? When you start out as an, an electrician, say, an apprentice, you're, you do everything with the master looking over your shoulder. You don't just pick up tools and do a job yourself. You don't just grab a tool and start to do something. You, you do it under the watchful eye of the master. And you grow bit by bit until one day the master says, you're ready. You are ready to do something by yourself. You can grow up and do a job all on your own. Now, interestingly, and I find this very interesting, and I, I think this might be true, there are a lot of theologians who say that eventually, once they developed in their apprenticeship with God, if they hadn't have fallen, once they had developed with their apprenticeship with God and grew in maturity, Adam and Eve would have been able to eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. They would have achieved a certain level of maturity and God would have said to them, okay, you're ready. You are ready for this knowledge. You are ready for this wisdom. Well done, you may eat. It's speculation, of course, but it fits that development mode. And now we're ready to see the heart of the temptation that the serpent offers to Adam and Eve. The serpent suggests to Eve and Adam that they can just skip the apprenticeship. 
They don't have to go through all that work. They don't have to take all that time, put in all that effort. They can just take the fruit and they can be masters right away. Eat this and you will become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. You don't have to sit at God's feet for all those years. You don't have to go through all that work of apprenticeship. You can be strong and independent and have knowledge and power right now. Instant gratification. That's a strong temptation. You can see it's a lure, right? God's way, the way that he's offering, is slow. It's a way of love. It's got power, but it's slow. It's going to take time. The way the serpent offers is right now. Power right now, instantly. Adam and Eve cannot resist that temptation. They choose the way of power and control instead of the slow work of relationship and love before the face of God with obedience. That choice offered to Adam and Eve that they fell for and that they were drawn to, that is a choice that is offered to us all the time in our life, every single day, especially in an age of technology. And just like Adam and Eve, we often take the fruit. In his most recent book, Andy Crouch, theologian, really smart and interesting guy, talks about the temptation of mammon. Remember that word mammon? That's an old word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the old translations, it says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And the modern translations usually translate that as money. You cannot serve both God and money. But the word in the original language is mammon. It's actually an Aramaic word. And mammon doesn't just mean money. Mammon is a being. Mammon is a demonic power. It is a force. And mammon wants to possess you. It wants to own you. It wants you to do things. Mammon wants you to trade your relationships for power and wants you to trade in love for control and standing on your own two feet and efficiency and independence. Crouch gives some really interesting examples of this exchange as it's offered in everyday life. He talks about um, moving. He talks about when he was young, a young couple had newly married, he and his wife had to move, and they couldn't afford to hire movers, and so they did what you all did when you were young, and you had to move, and you couldn't afford it. You call up your friends, right? Almost all of us have been at least one move where it was mainly our friends who did the heavy lifting, and how did that go? You call the moving truck, your friends show up early in the morning, you spend the morning getting all the stuff and going down the stairs and banging your knuckles against door frames and you load up the truck and then you drive to the new place and you spend the rest of the day unloading and your muscles are sore and it's exhausting. And you have some pizza and some drinks at the end of the day and it's actually pretty wonderful, right? It's an amazing bonding time, hard work, but you become really, really close. It's an incredibly personal thing to have them move you. So Crouch talks about doing that early in his life, and then he talks about it later in his life, when he's middle-aged and more successful, they have to move, and his wife's company just pays for everything. So they walk out the door, and later movers show up. They don't have to do anything. Movers show up, they put everything in, and it just magically appears in their new place. It's totally impersonal. They never saw the movers, never even learned their names. Now, is hiring movers a sin? No, okay? Just clearly not. But you can see that 
that a, an exchange has been made there, right? An exchange, we made an exchange with the technology of money. Money's a kind of technology of exchange. We chose power and efficiency, and we gave up something personal and relational. And if you make that exchange often enough in the culture, if you make that exchange in, all over your life in every sphere, all of a sudden something starts to happen to the fabric of your society and the fabric of your relationships. And you exchange the personal for the impersonal. Here's a question, another example. How many of you know the name of your UPS or your Amazon driver? I don't. I don't think you do anymore either. Didn't used to be that way, right? Right? If you, especially if you worked in an office. It was always the same guy, same gal, every single time, right? And you formed a relationship. Harv Westveld. Remember Harv Westveld? Passed away not so long ago. He was a, a delivery driver. And at his funeral, his kids told me stories about how everybody on his route knew Harv. He knew the name, their names, they knew his name, they knew about his kids, they would ask after him. There was personal relationships because he was always going to the same place every time. That never happens anymore. Why? Because we want free delivery. We want cheap stuff and we want it now. And so the market responds, as the market will do, and it figured out that the fastest way to do this and the cheapest way to do this was to give every driver a computer-generated route every single time that's always different and is maximally efficient so that the stuff can show up your door. Now, what happened there? We made another exchange. Because we wanted our stuff and we wanted it cheaply, we chose that over against the older, more expensive, slower way of personal relationships. Because, obviously, what we need to save this society is more stuff, right? Right? More stuff cheaply delivered. That's what you're all suffering from. You don't have enough stuff in your life. No, it's the opposite. It's relationship. It's relationship that we're missing. It's, it's, it's connection. It's love. We make the same choice as Adam and Eve. And Mammon is very pleased. One more example. It's time in the realm of sexuality, okay? Which is a really good example because the way human sexuality, the way God ordained it, the way it's supposed to progress is a lot like what I talked about with Adam and Eve. It's a discipline to a relationship, right? An apprenticeship to love between two people that has grown over time. And your level of sexual expression follows the progression of your relationship until finally you get to the point where you make promises to each other, covenant promises. At that point, you're allowed to eat the fruit, right? You're allowed to have the full expression of, of sexual expression between two people. You grow it slowly through love, through mutual discipline, formed over time. Every day, Mammon, the serpent, offers us the pleasure of sex without any of the friction of relationship, instantly. That's what pornography is. Pornography is instant virtual sex delivered with a click, delivered in whatever form you want it, without any friction of relationship or love. It's pure mammon, and many, many people pick that fruit. Adam and Eve fall. We fall. 
But despite our failure, God is faithful. We see it in this story. He does not leave his people alone. He goes and seeks out Adam and Eve, even though they're hiding from him. And when he finds them shivering and cold and full of shame, what does he do? He creates clothing for them. He covers them up, covers their sin, covers their shame, girds them against the misery that they themselves created. God does what God will do through the rest of Scripture, cleaning up his people's mistakes, covering over their sins. And then in verse 15, we hear about this mysterious promise, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. That's Jesus, of course. Jesus is the seed of the woman promised in that text. He will come to this earth and his coming will not be efficient. And it will not give instant relief. It will be slow and full of love. Jesus will walk a long road with 12 misunderstanding disciples and it will be excruciating for him. It will not be easy, but he will stick with those guys and put up with them. And Jesus will go from town to town and hundreds, thousands of people will come up to him and fall at his feet and tell them their stories and he will listen to each and every one and lay his hand on them and heal them, give them grace. That is exhausting. And finally, of course, he will mount a cross and pour out his life as an innocent sufferer so that we might be saved. Calling an army of angels would have been so much more efficient, right? Waving a magic wand, he could have skipped all that. In fact, that is just the temptation that the serpent, the devil, Satan, gives to him early in his ministry. The serpent tries to do the exact same thing to Jesus that he did to Adam at the beginning. Serpent, devil comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you, you, you don't have to go through all that trouble. I can, you can skip this apprenticeship. You, you don't have to put up with those 12 disciples. You don't have to pick up with all those needy people. And you don't have to put up with the cross. You can have all authority in heaven and on earth. And here's what you need to do. Just, just bow down and worship me. And I'll give it to you right now. It's the same temptation. But Jesus refuses the way of mammon. Where Adam failed, Jesus was faithful. He chooses the way of his father, which has always been the slow way of community and relationship, and love. And today again, he invites you to his table. And at this table, what will he do? He will offer you fruit. The fruit that he offers you is not fast food. Satan's food was fast food. This is slow food. But it's food that comes and overcomes all your failures and washes them away. And it's a food of a community that is working together in the slow way, working together to overcome the things that divide us, the frictions of life, the difficulties of this world, working together with love in mutual dependence to build the kingdom that will come through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you, come to this table and partake of the slow food of his love. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that you are faithful where we fall flat in our face. Thank you for the slow path of redemption that you walked, the way you absorbed 
all the troubles and all the sins, and you did it for love of us. Lord, we pray that as we eat this food, we will receive in our hearts the strength and forgiveness that you offer here, and that will make us strong to serve you in this world. In Christ's name, amen.